going to be over with anyway. Then it won't even be an issue. But I just wanted to uh, bring that out. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, there is no God but you. And you watch over us as you watched over Israel. And you know things way before we know anything. And Father, we know that you have this whole situation in hand. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, just minister to us this morning through your word. I thank you for the technology that we have today that we're able to broadcast us live. And I ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would minister your word to each one who's listening. And so now, Father, I pray and ask for your anointing that the words I speak truly would not be my own, but would be yours. And so use me now, Lord, to minister to and speak to your people, I pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So if you want to open your Bibles along with me, we are in Numbers chapter 17. And Pastor Frank will be picking up afterwards. In Numbers chapter 17, and we're going to be starting off by looking at verses 1 through 7. But just as a, a means of introduction, what's going on in this particular portion of Scripture is that the Lord is really fed up with all the grumbling of the people against Moses. And we have to understand that even today, grumbling undermines any ministry. Because one of the things when we're obeying the Lord and we don't like what's happening, we're actually grumbling against God. And, I, and that's a very um, dangerous place to find yourself. Because nothing can be accomplished when there's grumbling and things that are undermining the work of the ministry. Because it is not only a lack of trust in God, but it's disobedience to the direction that he might be taking us to what he might be showing us. And so that's the reason that we have to have that ability and willingness to just humble ourselves before the Lord. Because we have to understand that God sees what we don't see. He knows what we don't know. And there might be things that we're impervious to, and so God has to make decisions or does make decisions in order to uh, bring us through difficult situations or to accomplish his work of ministry. And we don't understand why. And therefore, the only thing we should do is just trust him and follow him. I don't know how many times, this sounds like an old country western song, but I don't know how many times I've thanked God for unanswered prayer. Because, oh, I thought for sure we should be going in a certain direction, and I prayed about it, and, oh, Lord, make this happen, and, and then it didn't. <clears throat> and then in the long run, you realize it would have been a disaster if we went in that direction, or if we would have done this, or we would have done that. And so we have to just put our complete trust and faith in the Lord and recognize that, that grumbling is not against other people, or even it's against God. If we trust God, Trust God. And so we're picking up in Numbers chapter 7, 17, I'm sorry, chapter 17, and verses 1 through 7. Number 17, starting with verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and get from them a rod from each uh, father's house, 
all the leaders according to their father's house. Twelve rods. Write each man's name on his rod, and you shall also write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there shall be one rod from the head of uh, each of the father's houses. Now, one of the things just to mention here is a point of interest. <clears throat> a lot of people don't realize this, but Levi wasn't among the 12 tribes at that time. There are actually 13 tribes that are listed. There's 12 tribes that were considered the tribes of Israel, but the Levites were set apart to minister unto the Lord. Now, later on in Scripture, we find that one of the other tribes was eliminated, and Levi then became one of the tribes of Israel. And in the book of Revelation, they're listed as one of the 12. But at this point, they were simply set apart to minister unto the Lord. In fact, when they first went into the promised land, we're going to find that when all 12 tribes received an inheritance, Levi didn't. And the Lord said, because I am your inheritance. Just a, a little interesting point to bring out there. Verse 4. Then you should place the rods that have had the names of the leaders and also Levi, uh, Aaron, I mean, written on them. Then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece. For each leader, according to their father's house, 12 rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses placed the rods before the, tabern before the Lord in the tabernacle of witnesses. Now remember, this is all about the authority that God had given Moses. This is what this is about. The people were grumbling and complaining about that. They had the idea and they had the concept, why, why can't I have this authority? Why can't I do this? Why is it only Moses and why is it only Aaron that have these leadership positions? But we need to understand that someone has to be in charge. Any of us who've been in the military recognize what chaos there'd be that if you didn't have um, a commanding officer, if you didn't have an executive officer, if you didn't have platoon sergeants, if you didn't have squad leaders, there'd be complete chaos. You wouldn't even know what direction you're going. God has an order that we're to follow. And that order is that we might be able to accomplish all that he's called us to, to, to do. And so biblical leadership, though, is not based on outward appearance. Biblical leadership is not based on education. But it's based on the call of God. And a lot of people have that mistaken. They think that being a pastor, for instance, is just a vocation you choose. And so you go to college to become a pastor. The only way anyone can be called into the pastoral ministry is by God. And for some, he might have them go to Bible college and seminary. For others, um, he, they might be like Paul, where he takes them in the wilderness and instructs them himself and prepares them for the ministry. Now, we have to remember that this was the problems also with the religious leaders that Jesus Christ felt. Why? <clears throat> he didn't meet all of their man-made requirements. He didn't go to their schools. He didn't 
sit at the feet of their educated men in order to receive you know, his accolades and, and everything else that they might put on a man that would say, now he's prepared for ministry. He wasn't even of the right tribe to be one of the leaders, one of the spiritual leaders of Israel. But nevertheless, of course, he was the son and is the son of God. And God's the one who placed him in the ministry, not man. Now, in, in Philippians um, 2, verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Whether that's any form of ministry you might be involved in, or whether it's the ministry of preaching the word of God, of being a pastor, it is God who places us in the ministry to do his will, to do his purpose, to serve him. Now the thing we have to realize is that being a leader doesn't mean you're perfect. I promise you that. In fact, Moses wasn't perfect. His mistakes are recorded. In fact, he wasn't even allowed to enter into the promised land because of, of the mistakes that he made. And Aaron, of course, we know he certainly made his mistakes, and they're recorded in Scripture as well. And uh, he fell to the cries of the people and built the golden calf and fell into idolatry. And another time he conspired with his sister Miriam because they were jealous over Moses' authority. And so their mistakes were recorded. But nevertheless, God used Moses to lead the people, and he used Aaron as his high priest. So it doesn't mean if the, if the Lord has called you into some form of ministry, you're not going to make mistakes. You will. Now, it must always be a call, not an ambition, not a course of study. It must always be a call. And many people don't realize that. It has to be a call from God. And um, anyone who I know who really has a heart for ministry and is a, a preacher called of God, they can tell you exactly when it was that the Lord spoke to them. For me, crazy as it is, I was in a tree stand hunting. And that's when the Lord spoke to me, that he was calling me into the ministry. And so without a call, a man has no... Um, right trying to enter or force his way into ministry. Now, one of the things that we learn from this particular portion of Scripture is that um, if you look for faults in your leaders, you're going to find them. And that's one of the reasons they had a problem. That's one of the reasons they grumbled. Because they're looking at Moses and they're looking at Aaron and they're saying, well, look, I can see mistakes and I can see faults that they have. So why can't I be a leader? A person isn't called to be a leader because they're faultless. They're called because God called them. No other reason. And so one of the things that we learn from this portion, too, is that we have to have faith in the Lord. It's the Lord who called these men into ministry, and so we have to have faith in his calling. Because no pastor is perfect. But brothers and sisters... A pastor can do a lot more for the work of ministry if his fellowship stands behind him instead of in front of him, if you know what I mean. Encouraging him along rather than, you're doing this wrong, you need to do it this way. Because encouragement has many, many more results than criticism. It really does. 
And when people under, undermine a ministry, now I'm not talking about if you have a ministry that's going off on some wrong tangent, they're teaching things that are extra biblical and, and they're completely wrong, then something needs to be done. But I'm talking about when you have a ministry and the pastor and the church are really endeavoring to move in the right decision. When you oppose that ministry, you're opposing the work of God. So instead of opposing, start encouraging you know, so much more can be done by encouragement. And uh, those of you who have older children, you know, older children like 45, but those of you that have older children uh, understand the worst thing you can do is go up to them and say, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. But to say, hey, you know, I, I so appreciate what you're doing. Have you ever thought about this? And present it in such a positive way. Because I don't think any of us respond to criticism like, oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> I feel so great. That may now, probably, especially being a pastor, we should be willing to accept that kind of criticism because maybe it is from the Lord. But the fact is, it's so much more effective when people would come to you in love and try to encourage you in, in, in something that they see you might be doing wrong. Because uh, encouragement has many, many more results than criticism. Now, um, this does not mean, though, that a pastor should be unapproachable. I don't agree with that at all. I pray that every single person in our fellowship, when you're here, <laughs> I pray that every single person in our fellowship would have the freedom to come and talk to me and to point out something that they might not agree with. That's the way it should be because there's been more than one occasion where someone has come to me after a service and said, you know what, Pastor, on this portion of Scripture, I, I actually saw this here rather than what you were sharing. And I look and I realize I agree with them. They were right. Then it's simply a matter of correcting it. How much easier is that than trying to cause all kinds of division in a church if you're able to just come talk to your pastor, and be able to resolve any of these uh, issues that you might have. And, um, but leaders, you know, always, pastors, leaders in the church, always have to remember the consequences of disobedience. And once again, think of Moses. He couldn't enter in because of disobedience. Remember the whole account? Well, we'll we, we will be getting to that. The account of bringing water out of the rock. And he started taking on some of the responsibility of God. How long will we? And then instead of just um, speaking to the rock, he struck the rock three times. And because of that disobedience, he was allowed to see the promised land, but he wasn't allowed to enter into it. And look at David. I mean, he was a man after God's own heart. What a leader of Israel he was. And yet he uh, fell into sin. And, and took a, the, the blood of, a, of an innocent man. And so God told him that you can collect the materials for the temple, but you can't build it because you're a man of blood. So there are consequences for leaders if they make mistakes. But it's going to be the Lord who corrects them and the Lord who holds them accountable. You know, God uh, did not need to prove to Moses that Aaron was called to be his high priest. That's not why God did this, to prove to, to Moses. He did this to prove to the people. 
to show the people. Do you see the compassion and love in that? Because, I mean, you talk about God's patience. We just studied a couple weeks ago the whole account of uh, Korah. I like when Scripture says the account of Korah. <laughs> it was more than an account. But anyway, they rebelled so strongly against Moses that God opened up the earth and swallowed him. Right after that, then you have a whole group of people coming together, and they always whip the whole congregation up, and they're all upset with Moses because of what happened to Korah. Moses didn't do it. The Lord did it. And so a plague came. And once again, remember Moses interceded. He had Aaron, you know, take the censer and put the incense in it, which is a, uh, you know, in, a, an example of prayer. And he stood the gap between the people and the plague, and the plague stopped. But there were 14,000 people that died in the plague. So these things have just occurred, and now the people come complaining again. And so the Lord wants to, you know, put it to rest once and for all. Now. <clears throat> God did not need to do what he did, but he did it because he loves his people. He wanted this to stop. The Lord never has joy in, in seeing the destruction of those who are disobedient to him. Scripture makes that clear. So you've had the incident of Korah, you had the incident of those who uh, complained after the uh, Korah's rebellion, and so God, in his mercy, he's saying, look, I'm going to prove to all of you once and for all, these are the men I chose, and I have a right to choose them. And he was doing this out of love. He didn't want the children of Israel to be, you know, oh, well, all, why can't I, and grumbling and all upset. So it was actually an act of kindness. And uh, because God's anger was really over the fact that they were testing his authority. Not Moses and not Aaron's. And um, there's an old saying, and some of you might have heard it before, there are none so blind as those who will not see. In other words, it's right in front of their eyes, but they won't see it. They're, they're unwilling to see it. And the reason they're unwilling to see it is it doesn't go along with what they desire, with what they think, with what they feel. But it's not about feelings. It's not about what we want or don't want. It's about God's will and God's purpose. Then we move on to Numbers 17, verse 8. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witnesses. And behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted, brought forth buds, had produced blossoms, and yielded ripe almonds. Pretty amazing then Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord to all the children of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. So he brings it out, and remember what the prayer was, that the rod that budded would be proof of who God had given authority to. Now look at how much further he went. His, his bod rutted, uh, uh, um, blossomed, and it budded, blossomed and brought forth ripe figs. He went beyond. Now you have to remember that these rods that the leaders of Israel had uh, was just like a large staff. And it was what they used for walking, but they would walk in front of, the, of their tribes 
with this staff. It was a sign of their leadership. But th this was carved wood. It was dead is the point I'm making. So now you had these rods that the wood was dead, it was hardened and so forth, and God brought life out of Aaron's rod. To me, that is uh, absolutely so amazing because it was a demonstration. Aaron's rod was a demonstration of God bringing life out of death. And it is still Jesus Christ who brings life out of death. We were once dead in our transgression and sins. And Jesus Christ gave us new life. It's amazing. And I think the promise God made to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, if you want to look these up or write them down. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, I'm going to read verse 5 and then verse 8. John 15, 5. I am the vine, Jesus is saying this. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, <clears throat> excuse me, you can do nothing. But then go down to verse 8. But this is my, my, but by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. So this portion here is so amazing because uh, it's telling us, God is telling us, the Lord is telling us, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can't do anything on your own. You take a, uh, um, a branch off a grapevine or any other kind of fruit tree and you throw it in the ground and see what happens. It dies. But if it's still attached to the vine or still attached to the fruit tree, whatever it might be, then all the nutrients from that tree goes out and it, and it blossoms, it buds, it blossoms and brings forth fruit. But it doesn't do it all on its own. It's from the trunk. It's from the center. And the same way, God is saying, if you want to bear fruit, you've got to be in me. You're not going to bear fruit by going out and, and doing your own thing. And you know, one of the things that we can mention here is the fact that any ministry that's not based on the Bible, they're not grounded in him. They're not attached to him. You know, sometimes people have asked, um, why is it your fellowship goes right through the Bible? And my answer is, what else is there? He is the vine, his word. Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word what? Was God. He is God. This is the word. And if we go off of the word of God and we're teaching on this, or we're going to have this series and we're going to have that series, not being critical, yes I am, but anyway, we're going to have this series, we're going to have that series, you're going all over the place. There's no order, and he is a God of order. And I, I would encourage every, every church, get into the word of God, do systematic expositional preaching. What that means, you go right through the Bible. Because one of the things that I found going through the Bible many times now, from Genesis to Revelation, is that there have been things you know, that I thought doctrines and, and so forth that I thought were accurate. And then as I go through the Bible, word by word, line by line, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, book by book, sometimes I find I was wrong. And you want to know something? That's okay. 
Let God be true and every man a liar. I don't mind finding I'm wrong because when you find you're wrong, guess what? You know you're wrong. I mean, why do you go to the doctor? Well, doctor, I just want to come in to prove to you how healthy I am. I mean, what would even the purpose be? You, want, you go to your physician because you want to find out what's wrong. We go to the Word of God that we're able to find out what's wrong. Because there's a beautiful thing when you find out when something's wrong, you can correct it. I mean, think about that. You can correct it. It's a wonderful thing. Now, <clears throat> I love it also in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. 1 John 5, 12, it says, He who has the Son, talking about Jesus Christ, has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, we've been talking about bringing life out of death. We're dead in our sin and transgression. We're talking about life. This is probably one of the simplest verses of Scripture to remember, you know, to memorize, and yet it's probably the single most pertinent portion of Scripture we'll find. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. How simple is that? In other words, if you've been born again of the Spirit and you have the Son, His Holy Spirit dwells within your cardia, your heart, your inner man, you have life. You're born again. If you do not have the Spirit of God dwelling within your heart, you don't have life. It's that simple. You know, some people will say, well, I'm a very religious person. Well, so were the Pharisees and Sadducees. It didn't do them much good. They didn't even recognize Jesus when he was right in front of them. It's a matter of having Jesus or not having Jesus. And that's the question all of us have to ask ourselves in our heart. You and I, as believers, Scripture tells us, we are a royal priesthood. Did you know that? All of us, as believers, we're, we are a royal priesthood. Therefore, the Holy Spirit desires to bud, blossom, and bring forth fruit in our heart, in our lives, as a royal priesthood. Why? That we might be able to minister to others, to those around us. Because every single one of us are around people that others aren't. Did you know that? You have your own set of family and friends and social acquaintances. You have the people you work with. We're all around different people. And so that's why we are all a royal priesthood, that we might minister the word of God and his truth wherever we might go. Now, I'm going to read to you where we get this uh, idea from. It's from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9, for those of you out, out there who take notes. You know... I want you to look up the scriptures that I give. Because we're Bereans. And Bereans is, is, uh, is taken from Acts 17.11. And I'm just going to paraphrase what that portion of scripture is about. To be a Berean means you don't just accept whatever is being said. You take what's being said and you compare it to the word of God. And if it lines up with what the word of God says, what the person is speaking is true. If it doesn't line up with the word of God, what the person is speaking is false. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message to preaching of Paul with all eagerness, but daily examine the scriptures, daily examine the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. We're Bereans. 
But I love it. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And brothers and sisters, his light is marvelous. His light is marvelous. I don't know of anyone who's had a real born-again experience, who's really committed their life to Jesus Christ, and they said, well, it's really been a drag after that. You know, things have been dark and awful. No, no, no. Life turns around. It's just completely different. You know, you think, I mean, I was 31 before I came to the Lord. And I look back on my pre-Christ days, and I thought I was having a lot of fun, but I wasn't. And it was really, my life was, was not going in, in a very positive way. But then you give your heart to Jesus Christ, and it's like, wow, it's better and better and better. I'm 75, so I've just figured out how long I've been walking with the Lord. 54 years, is that right? Yeah, 44 years. My wife's here to correct me. That's why God gives men wives to correct them. Amen. <laughs> so, for 44 years, it just gets better and better and better. It's not like, oh boy, it's starting to get stale now after 44 years. No, it gets better and better. It's the most wonderful thing in the world to belong to Jesus. Now, moving on to Numbers 17, we're going to verse 10. And I'm going to read verses 10 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put their complaints away from me. God gets tired of, the, of complaining. He gets tired of grumbling, lest they die. <laughs> Thus did Moses, just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. So the ch children of Israel, now when I read this, you have to understand the children of Israel still don't get it. But God is patient, and he helps them understand. And um, Verse 12, so the children of Israel spoke to Moses saying, surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever comes even near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? They didn't understand. They were afraid to come near, near the Lord thinking that's what killed, you know, killed their uh, fellow man. That's what would kill them. That's not true. It's the way we come before the Lord. If we come before the Lord and say, okay, Lord, here's the way it's going to be. Here's the way I demand for things to go. Well, then you might have some problems. But if you come before the Lord and say, God, I trust you. Lord, you've proven yourself over and over, like that old hymn. Lord, here I am. I'm your servant. You can approach God, and you're going to experience his love and his kindness in ways you've never known. Because Aaron's staff that butted was kept in front of the testimony. Why? It was kept before the tent of testimony. That it might be a continuous reminder to the people that God has his ways. God has chosen his leaders. Just trust him. Simply let go and trust him and be faithful to what the Lord has shown you. Because the Lord oftentimes sets up reminders for grumbling, doesn't he? And sometimes the scars of our own disobedience the Lord uses, right, in order to remind us of mistakes we've made. I think every one of us 
not out loud because it's between you and the Lord, could list times in our lives that we really messed up. All of us could. And uh, I, I don't agree with uh, those who think we should all get together and share our deepest, darkest secrets. Because the Lord knows, the Lord has forgiven you, the Lord can handle it. But you know what? Your brothers and sisters can't. You know, you lay out some of these things that maybe you did or didn't do, and it could mess them up. God has forgiven you. But sometimes the scars of, of, the, of the things that we have done wrong are always there in our heart. And you know what? It's a reminder. A good reminder. Like Aaron's rod that budded. Trust me, the Lord is saying. You know, I struck you out of love, like a parent disciplining a naughty child. Why does a parent discipline a naughty child? To bring them back into order. To bring them back into compliance with what mommy and daddy know is right from the word of God. And in the same way, there are those times the Lord strikes us to bring us back into compliance because he loves us. So I'm thankful for some of the scars that I can still see in my heart and my life just as a reminder how much the Lord loves me and how far he's willing to go to bring me back into um, compliance to him. And um, sometimes, like I said, um, these scars not only are a reminder of the discipline the Lord gave us, but listen, it should also be a reminder of his love. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a whole lot better to be scarred than destroyed. And the Lord sometimes will bring this discipline on us, even harsh discipline. And the purpose and reason for it, brothers and sisters, is always love. No other reason but love. Because he wants to bring us back into compliance before we are destroyed. You know, before we let our life go off in this way or let our life go off in that way. It's his love. Now, one of the things we have to understand is I don't want to frighten you from thinking you can never go to God. It is okay to go to God and say, God, I don't understand. Lord, why is this happening? Lord, please show me what, what, what's, what's happening here. I don't understand. God, help me to understand. See, that's different than going to God and saying, oh, you know what, God, I'm really upset about this. God, I really, I really am not happy with the way you're working this. See, that's the arrogance that the children of Israel used to approach God, and that's why he brought discipline. But I just want, want to encourage you, there's nothing wrong with taking our questions and even our heartaches to the Lord. Lord, I don't understand why. Please show me. Bring comfort to me. And the thing you can be sure of, he will, because he is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our time of need. That's what Scripture tells us. He'll give us the answers that we're longing for. And so the thing that I'm going to conclude with is this, is no matter how disobedient you've been to the Lord, or even if you've never even really accepted his free gift of salvation, the answer to your disobedience or the answer to your unregenerate heart is simply prayer. God, forgive me a sinner. It's that simple. 1 John 1, 9, as you guys all know, my favorite verse, if we confess our sin. This is for, this is for the believer now. 
for the believer. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we go to God as believers and we say, God, forgive me a sinner. He does, and he purifies us and sets us up on the right path. We never have to go back to the beginning. We get up where we left off. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Notice what it's saying. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked fall by calamity. But also for the unbeliever, someone who's never committed their life to Jesus Christ, and sometimes they think, well, what's the whole process? How do I go about being, you know, being saved, being born again? It's not a process. It's simple. It's a heart decision. God, forgive me, a sinner. And he will. He'll forgive you, and he'll come into your heart by his Holy Spirit, and he will transform you, and he will encourage you and lead you to be his child from then on. There's never a time that I look back and... For most of us that have been born again, we can remember the exact day, the exact time, the very place we were. And there's never a time that I look back on the place where I committed my life to Jesus Christ and was born again and uh, think, ah, what a mistake that was. I look back and I'm always, thank you, Jesus, thank you. And I encourage the same for each one of you. So let's pray. Father, I come before you in Jesus' name and I thank you for this portion of Scripture, the encouragement that it is to we who believe to just get ourselves right with you, Lord. And also what an encouragement it is to the unbeliever that how simple it is to just confess your sin and ask God to take over your life. And so I pray, Lord, that the teaching this morning would minister both to the believer and to the unbeliever, to those who need forgiveness for wrongdoing as a believer and those that need forgiveness for their sin nature to be born again of the Spirit. And so come, Lord, and minister to each one, each of the hearts of those who are listening or watching, that they might be ministered to and encouraged to follow after you with all of their heart, mind, and strength, and love their fellow man, Lord, as themselves. And I pray this all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And God bless you, my friends.